Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation as usual as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, the founder and the daughter of a mother who lived with dementia for 30 years. If you liked our opening song, uh, by Claire, uh, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band. You can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new here today to Alzheimer's Speaks, we're True Talk Radio, and we're about sound information, not just sound bites. And our goal is to raise all voices, big and small, from those diagnosed to those that care and serve them, to advocates and researchers, and so much more. Today is a live show, and you can join the conversation if you'd like by dialing in at 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. And as always, I want to thank our listeners, your likes, your clicks, and shares. You just keep pushing out our resources here at Alzheimer's Speaks, and I really appreciate that. It really helps build a sense of community and comfort and collaboration. And, and again, I think that's the only way we're going we're gonna to beat this disease is to battle it together. Um, some of you may not know that Louis Body Awareness is in October. And also I wanted to give a shout out to Us Against Alzheimer's. They are doing their summit. They started yesterday and it'll go through the 21st. You can just go to usagainstalzheimers.org uh, to find out more information about that. And today's show is going to be about what the heck happens when caregiving taps you on the shoulder. And we are so lucky to have... Um, Dr. Aaron Blight with us. But before I introduce him, I always like to give some shout outs and and tell you about our upcoming shows and a couple of our past shows. So coming up this week, we are going to be interviewing the director and producer for the film Determined, which has been um, a a passion of love and uh, a project of hope that uh, this group has been working on for many, many years. And so I'm really excited to, to talk about that. We, um, following that next week on Tuesday, we're going to be talking with uh, IBM, and they're going to talk to us about Alzheimer's disease and artificial intelligence, which will be really interesting. And then just recently we had Val on from the U.K., who is living with dementia, and she had some great insights that she shared with us. We also talked with Immune Bio and Amika, um, both on some uh, great new technology they're working on that is non-evasive testing, which is pretty cool. Now, um, let me see, where do I start? I've got so many shout outs. Uh, I ran across a new thing today that a friend of mine over in the UK sent, 
And it's called the Wednesday Wave. And it's from 3 p.m. on October 14th to December 16th. And it's by the Vamos theater.co.uk and just go to their arts in projects page to find more information out about the Wednesday wave. And then Dementia Action Alliance is um, started some online programs that are pretty cool. They have some for individual uh, people who are living with dementia as well as uh, community settings. And you can just go to daanow.org to get more information on that. And let's see, we've got a memory cafe coming up with uh, Artist Senior Living in Minnesota, in Woodbury. Uh, the Artist Way Memory Cafe will be October 21st. And that's always on the third Wednesday of the month at one o'clock. It's virtual. So anybody around the world can join us there. You can find more information by contacting me. And then I also facilitate another group, uh, Arthur's Memory Cafe here in Minnesota, which was uh, one of the first memory cafes in the U.S. And our next meeting will be on the 28th at 1 o'clock. And we meet the second and the fourth Wednesday. Again, both of those are, are virtual now, so anybody is welcome. And I am working on a project with a partner that I'm really excited about. So we've been doing some teasers. So this is, a, this is our teaser for today. Does the thought of dementia disrupt your sleep and sidetrack your mind during the day? We believe it helps to get through tough times when you feel supported. Watch for our exciting rollout November 10th, just three weeks from today. We believe it's going to make you feel very supported and welcome. So I'll be giving you little teasers on that as we as we creep up to uh, November 10th. Just have a couple more shout outs to do. Coral um, Health is still letting people download two of their apps, Music First and Coral Faith. You can just go to Coral, that's C-O-R-O, health.com to find that out. And then, of course, if you are looking for another memory cafe um, anywhere in the U.S., and um, I think Dave's up to like five countries now, you can go to memorycafedirectory.com. You'll find out more about these wonderful uh, support groups that, um, I hate to even call them a support group because there's um, some uh, negative connotations that go with that because they really are a gathering of friends. Um, but check memorycafedirectoryout.com. And then I want to give one last shout out to the Brain Health uh, Survey done by uh, MDVIP. And just go to our homepage and you can find out more about that. Let's hear from the Foot Bar Walker, and then we'll have our discussion with Aaron. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Foot Bar Walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's the 
thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Footbar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Footbar Walker. Well, let's get to our program today. I'm really excited to have Dr. Aaron Blight with us. He is the author of a brand new book called When Caregiving Calls, Guidance as You Care for a Parent, Spouse, or Aging Relative. And the book was just released, and uh, so I, I can't wait to talk to him about this. Dr. Blight is the founder of Caregiving Kinetics, which is a consulting firm dedicated to those who care for our aging population. He has personally served as a family caregiver. He was a home care uh, company owner, a caregiving scholar, and a leader at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So uh, welcome, Dr. Blight. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Lori. Thank you for having me today. Well, I'm, I'm so excited to have this conversation. Your book just looks fascinating, and I know our listeners will think so as well. Now, I always ask everybody who's on the show before I kind of get into my line of questions, if they've been personally touched in their own circle of friends or family by uh, some form of dementia. Well, my uh, mother-in-law, she had a brain tumor, and I was working at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services at the time. It was a completely unexpected diagnosis, and she um, received radiation and chemotherapy and two brain surgeries. And uh, as a result of that, her, she was in a state of cognitive decline for the rest of her life, for about five and a half years. She did not have um, Alzheimer's. Uh, but she did have aphasia, and her uh, cognition uh, con- was just slowly deteriorating. Um, so we we lived through that, and and then uh, later, as I owned my home care company, I uh, was able to interact with a lot of people who had Alzheimer's disease, um, our clients, and uh, so I I have it has definitely hit close to home for me. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. It it doesn't, I always tell people, it doesn't make any difference if you have or not. It's just uh, nice to kind of get that background. Um, for you, you know, since you have been touched in a variety of ways by caregiving, um, can you tell us how it, how it entered your life? Because a lot of times it just kind of creeps up on us and snatches us away. We don't really see it coming. Yeah, for us, it, it happened very abruptly. Um, I was in the federal Medicaid program. I was actually in the disabled and elderly health programs group of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So I was writing national health care policy for elderly and disabled people. And if I'm being honest with you, though, Lori, I didn't really understand a whole lot about being elderly or disabled at that time in my life. I was 29 years old. I bet my mother-in-law got this uh, diagnosis and she had a brain tumor. She needed immediate brain surgery. They gave her weeks to live. Um, If she had the brain surgery and she survived the operation, she would maybe live six to nine months. That's what the doctors projected. So of course she had the brain surgery and then she moved into our home. She was going to be in our home for a couple of weeks just as she recovered from the brain surgery. 
And um, as it turns out, she stayed in our home for a couple of years and went through all the, the radiation, chemotherapy treatments, a second brain surgery, and she ended up living five and a half years. And uh, that, is, that was my experience and my introduction to family caregiving. So it happened wow. pretty much overnight. Uh, interesting. You know, with my mom, she had uh, dementia, but she had a really tough time getting it diagnosed. She knew something was wrong. My dad and I knew something was wrong. No one else really knew, but we didn't talk to others about it. And so that was kind of a, a frustrating process of, of knowing that you're caring, but not even knowing what to do because you don't know what it is. But my dad, too, had a brain uh, brain tumor, and it was just bing, bam, boom. He's, you know, he's in uh, for an appointment, and the next thing you know, they're shipping him down to the hospital and uh, in the cities here and saying we're not sure he's even going to make it through the surgery and then gave him like a year to a year and a half and he lived four and a half years. So on that side of it, I, um, I really can, uh, can relate to what you went through because the stories are are super, super similar there. And, and, you know, we were both lucky. They lived a lot longer than they, than they thought they were going to. Um, I want to ask you, because I always find it fascinating. Why did you decide to write your book when caregiving calls Guidance as you care for a parent, a spouse, or an aging relative. Well, Lori, um, to be honest, I felt compelled to write the book. I felt like this was something that I needed to do. I received an unsolicited offer to sell my business a few years ago. And uh, after a lot of thought and soul searching, I, I chose to do that. And then I kind of asked myself, what, well, what's next? You know, I've, I've uh, had this home care company and, and now I don't. And um, I realized that between my, my health care policy experience, my family caregiving, my home care company as a, as a business, and then also my study of caregiving um, as a phenomenon of social science, that I, I couldn't just leave that all on the shelf. I had to, to do something to try to help caregivers, uh, because I know that caregivers can benefit from some support and assistance. So uh, I decided to write the book, and I'm just super excited that it's out there now. Yeah, what a, what a process. Um, I've thought about writing one, and, and I've been doing this since 2009, and I still have, <laughs> and I've got a couple of them in me, but I keep doing other projects. And, you know, people I don't think understand what a commitment it takes to, to really sit down and focus and write a book. The, the time commitment, the a lot of times yeah. the emotional drain because you're reliving things all over again. Yeah. But um, I, I find it so interesting that, so many people are drawn uh, to make a difference because they just say, you know, there's got to be an easier way for the, the next one down this path because uh, this wasn't such a smooth process. Did you, did you feel that um, too? I know I sure did. It was just like, Hey, where's the support? <laughs> where's everybody? <laughs> uh, uh, absolutely. Lori, you know, when I was, when my wife and I were going through family caregiving, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. We didn't know anything about the supports that were available to us. This was back in the days before a lot of the online um, services and supports are out there for caregivers, but um, we just fumbled through it and just did the best that we could. 
And it was not until years later when I started studying caregiving and getting into the research on caregiving that I started to really understand the fundamental uh, challenges and the reasons why caregiving uh, can be so difficult. And so um, I try to share some of that knowledge in, in the book. And to your point about, you know, the time, how, how difficult it is to write a book, you know, I, I started writing this book a couple of years ago. And um, you've probably read some books where the author, the author goes on and on and on and doesn't really say anything new. I did not want to write one of those books. I wanted my book to be concise and accessible, easy to read, easy to relate to for caregivers. Um, and so I got, I got a good chunk of it done, but uh, it was only about 23,000 words. It wasn't long enough to be a book. And mm-hmm. the manuscript uh, languished there for probably about a year. I just didn't have the inspiration or the, the interest maybe to, to add more to it. And uh, then I was able to, to pick it back up and I just started, uh, new life was breathed into the book and I was able to, uh, to complete it. Mm-hmm. It is funny how everything um, really happens in the proper timing, you know, to, to push it out. It, it w- probably wouldn't have made sense prior, um, you know, putting it even in a different format to a, a workbook or a pamphlet versus an actual book and then being able to be kind of rejuvenated in, in spirit to sit back down and write some more and, and formulate it. Why don't you tell us who, who is your primary target for the book? And then let's talk about how the book is laid out. So what people can expect um, if they go purchase it. So the book is written for family caregivers and Uh, There was a report that came out earlier this year from the AARP and the uh, National Alliance for Caregiving that estimated that just in the United States alone, there are about 53 million family caregivers uh, in America. And so that's a a little over one in five adults who have provided Mm -hmm. some sort of informal uh, caregiving for a loved one in in the last year. I mean, that's a huge uh, number of people. But so so caregiving caregiving is kind of ubiquitous. It's it's it affects so many people, but at the same time, it's not readily recognized in our society. And um, caregivers don't get the kind of support that they need. Um, they often feel like they're uh, you know relegated to um, uh, a situation where they you know their needs are not met, and um, they're. Sp- spending so much time focused on the their loved one who is a patient in the healthcare system that um you know it's easy to say well they they have their needs are so obvious uh you know who am i to try to get any support for myself so they sacrifice themselves um and devote so much of their time and their hands and their heart to uh the service of caregiving that uh this book was written to try to help them well, and don't you find too that so many people don't even recognize themselves as a caregiver? They're they're a spouse, they're a, they're Absolutely. an adult child, they're they're a friend, and so what they do is because they love somebody. It's not because of this title. And so I know I went to a oh gosh a meeting they were rolling out some. Uh, it was a, a big AARP thing here in Minnesota years ago, and. 
you know, they were talking about how people didn't recognize themselves as caregivers. And I'm like, well, that's because of the terms you're using. You know, you're, you're not, you're not humanizing them and their individual roles that even put them in that situation. You know, they're in relationships and um, it was kind of fun. Oh my gosh, you're right. No, no wonder they don't see it. They see a caregiver as somebody else doing something. That's something they're doing um, because a lot of times people want to, not all the time. Sometimes, you know, families feel pulled too in that direction. Um, how, let's go into how the book is laid out in terms of, of flow and things. How did you, how did you structure it that'll make it easy for, for families to find information? Well, the book is organized into 18 different chapters. Each chapter uh, talks about something that is central in the caregiving experience, uh, either for the caregiver or the care receiver or both. And um, the chapters, you, would you like me to read them to you real quick? They're real quick. They're really Sure, easy. sure. Um, okay. Uh, the chapters are conversation, roles, relationship, family, time, stress, work, body, mind, home, independence, loneliness, emotion, providers, skills, rewards, faith, and next steps. And after each chapter, and each chapter is, is a, 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 like I said, it's an easy to read, um, relatable discussion of that topic. And after each chapter, I've included questions for reflection. And there are anywhere from three to six questions for the caregiver to ask themselves at the end of the chapter. And um, the intent of those questions is to allow the caregiver to really think deeply about their caregiving experience and their, their situation, their care receiver, and gain insights as to how they can do a better job for themselves and for their loved one while they're caregiving. Um, one of the early readers of the manuscript, she, we, we, we talked about the questions for reflection. And she said to me, she said, you know, I liked the questions for reflection, but I did not like the questions for reflection. <laughs> and I asked her, why, why, why is that? And she said, well, I guess I just, there were a few things that I just didn't want to think about. But then yeah. I realized that I really do need to think about this. And, you know, unwittingly, she summed up the reasons why I have those questions for reflection in there. Because um, if there's something that you really don't want to think about, um, then maybe that's an indication that you probably should. Um, yeah. Caregiving really presents us with some, some tough uh, circumstances and choices and things that we, we want to avoid. But if you um, approach the realities of caregiving and really dig deep, you can reach a point that you can be a little bit more proactive in your caregiving experience. I mean, care, by, its, by its very nature, caregiving is, is reactive, but there are things that you can do proactive to, to make the experience better for yourself and your loved one. Yeah, well, I've got a couple of comments on, on what all you said. I love that she said, well, you know, I like them, but I'm not so much. 
because it's it's okay when you're looking at somebody else's life, but when you have to kind of go deep and reflect and go, okay, I got to be honest with myself and my situation, and and that might mean yeah. I need to make some changes. <laughs> and uh, I think it's real easy for us to try to try to avoid all of that. I loved your titles because they are very concise, um, and I can only imagine how concise the book is, given that you hone those uh, the the chapter titles down. And uh, you know, you. I, I I I really do. Um, I think those reflection questions are so important because if we just go into it looking at this is for somebody else, and this is just knowledge for me for somebody else, we've really lost a huge learning opportunity to grow and, uh, and to analyze, you know, how do we want to be cared for? What's important to us? Because you know what? It could happen to us. We could be the next one that needs some help. And, um, and to be able to have those honest conversations with loved ones that could, could be anything from, you know, end of life to, you know, permanent disability to, um, maybe short-term um, inconvenience of, of having some kind of, of disease or illness. Um, none of us want to be in any of those positions. <laughs> but again, no. that's part of living. And so I, I think that that's uh, great you did that. Thank um, you. I, I love, I love oh. how you, you recognized it there as, as a really it's a learning opportunity, Lori. And I'm not a, I'm not a medical doctor. Uh, but my, mm-hmm. my doctoral degree is actually in learning um, and mm-hmm. adult learning. So I've tried to incorporate principles of adult learning through these questions for reflection in the book. I think that these are a very distinguishing part of the book. Um, it's not the type of book that attempts to be an encyclopedia and just give you all of the answers because invariably – uh, in, in a caregiving situation, it's impossible to write an encyclopedia that gives you all the answers. Um, usually caregivers are in the best position to discover the answers for themselves, but they just maybe need someone to ask them the right questions. Well, that's so true. And, and if somebody goes in thinking, um, you know, okay, this is my, my manual for dummies, it's going to tell me exactly step-by-step well, you're going to be gravely mistaken because everybody's <laughs> life is a little bit different. Everybody's role is a little different. Everybody's relationships are a little bit different. You know, our time, our energy, our finances, our resources, all of that stuff comes into play. And, you know, it, it, it affects every cell of, uh, in, in your body and the essence of who you are from, from start to finish. And I, I think the, the journey itself, you know, I was on it with my mom for 30 years. And as sad as it was for her to have dementia for that period of time, I, um, I learned so much. There were so many gifts wrapped in that for me. Um, but, you know, the, the levels of unconditional love I didn't know existed. You know, you, you think you know what unconditional love is, and then you're, you're kind of pushed of what really is that? And all of a sudden, you know, for me anyways, I, I got to go to this really spiritual place and these connections that I never thought would even be possible in terms of how we communicated and the comfort we gave each other, even when no words could be spoken anymore. So 
the lessons I think are are far deep and wide. And when you're caring for somebody, I also think one of the things that you learn is, and there's a saying in dementia, what's good for dementia is good for the world. And I think the same thing applies just in general with caregiving. When you are caring well, all of those things you're doing can be applied in other other ways in your life with other people, from from children to neighbors to coworkers to bosses to friends to lovers. It doesn't make any difference. Um, there's just but it, but you have to be open to looking at it in terms of you know what are the gifts? There's got to be a reason we're going through this. There mm-hmm. there's got to be something to learn. And I think that that's one of the most powerful lessons in, in stepping in is to allow yourself to experience, you know, don't, don't just experience the ugly side, the sad side, the grieving side, but, you know, ex- explore the joys and the possibilities and the ability to do things differently that you never would have thought of trying before, but now you have to because it doesn't work the other way. You know, I think those are, are really cool, cool things to be able to, to explore. Um, I wanted to ask if there was one important piece of advice that you would give to family caregivers um, or care partners, care companions. There's so many words out there these days that, that would be really top of mind. If, it, if there's just one thing only that they would take away, what would that be? <laughs> Um, you know, Laurie, uh, I would say that as a family caregiver, you don't have to do this alone. Um, it's okay to ask for help, to receive help. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times family caregivers uh, think that they have to shoulder this by themselves and um, sometimes they pay the price for it in their own health and well-being and their emotional state. And um, they can get help either with the tasks of caregiving for their loved one or the type of uh, emotional support that they might need themselves to continue in the caregiver uh, role. And so when you're when you're helping when you're sharing with others um, and allowing them to give you the assistance that you need, you're going to be in a better position uh, in the future to continue to support your loved one. Yeah, and and don't do what I did, which I didn't even know I was doing, but I think it's pretty common. I was the primary uh, <clears throat> care partner for my folks, and I have an older brother and a younger brother, and um, I, I used to get just furious with them. Why aren't they around? Why aren't they helping more? What's going on? You know, and, and then my dad died and we had this conversation and, you know, I was talking about writing a book at the time and uh, I was sharing some stories and, and I remember my older brother looking at me going, well, where'd you get all these stories? And my heart just sunk and I felt so sad for him. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he doesn't have, he doesn't have what I have. He doesn't have these brilliant, wonderful stories because he wasn't there. Uh-huh. And then we dug, we dug a little deeper as to why not. And then, you know, they both said, well, <laughs> they both looked at me, just cried and said, well, Lori, you know, you're, you're kind of a control freak. <laughs> I, I remember just taking a deep breath and going, well, no, I'm not. I'm organized. You know, <laughs> there's a big difference. And they're like, no, 
you're really kind of a control freak. And so it really wasn't fun to try to help because we knew you'd be critiquing us and telling us mm. how we didn't do it right. And, 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 you know, I have to give them credit. I, I did because I wanted them to do, I wanted them to deliver care how I delivered care. And so that was like a huge learning um, curve and opportunity for me to go. And then I started kind of laughing at myself going, well, well, who the heck wants to be tied to anybody 24-7, you know? I, I sure wouldn't want to be tied to me 24-7, you know? And, and um, variety is the spice of life. Why am I limiting these relationships? Because they're important to my folks. And, my, you know, they would give them great joy instead of me being this little tickler of, you know, well, why'd you get McDonald's? You know, you could have made dinner or you could have, you know, done this or you could have done that. Um, just stupid stuff that really didn't make any difference in terms of how my parents were cared for. And I didn't even know I was doing that, but I, I, um, I thought that as a, as a huge kind of lightning rod moment. Have you heard from other families that kind of go through that too, or am I a lone duck out there? Oh, you, that's very common. Those types of uh, feelings and experiences, you know, caregiving kind of, pokes at the the relationships within a family and um, the book actually devotes two complete chapters to family relationships the, the first chapter is on the relationship between the caregiver and the care receiver and how that relationship changes with the introduction of caregiving and the second chapter called family is about those other family members that may not be the uh, the primary caregivers, but are still in in the picture and have relationships with both the caregiver and the and the care receiver, and um, the dynamics that that come up between the family can be um, can be challenging. They can be very rewarding, um, but it, it'll teach you a lot about yourself. And just like you expressed. Um, with your brothers, um, you might learn some things about yourself and start to see uh, see yourself a little bit differently. And, you know, when mm-hmm. you were talking earlier, Lori, about uh, the gifts that you received as a caregiver, I, I just loved what you said about, you know, how you learned unconditional love and you grew spiritually and you uh, were able to connect with your your mother even at times when you weren't able to communicate with each other, you still were able to provide each other uh, comfort and, and, and communicate. You weren't able to speak. Um, and, you know, those, those dimensions of caregiving are, are found with, when you have devoted yourself to caregiving and you've started to kind of um, let yourself go and say, well, what's mm-hmm. in this? What can I gain from this? What can I learn from this experience? Uh, and getting beyond the, the anguish and, and the frustration and the, and the hurt. And that's well, where some of the really, greatest, the greatest blessings of caregiving are. Yeah. I, I remember um, just sitting on the couch with my mom, you know, saying no words, but just feeling that was the safest place in the world because she didn't yeah. judge. She didn't, you know, none of that. And it was like, wow. You know, and, and think, I mean, you know, I want our audience to really think, what really gives you comfort? Um, sometimes it's the smallest, littlest thing that we take for granted, but it's really the most important. You know, when you, when you feel like someone's your security blanket, 
you know, or you can just breathe and be your authentic self. Um, That's a huge gift. And we've kind of stomped that out in society in a lot of ways. And, you know, I, for me too, and my audience has heard me speak of this before, but I just think it's so important. I, you know, I was um, trying to be kind of super mom and didn't give anything up and just kept adding more and more stuff on my list when I was caring for both my parents and, raising my daughter and married and working full time and volunteering and having extra people live in my house and the whole nine yards. And, you know, that's most of us are, we just, we don't take anything off the plate. We just keep adding to it. And, and I got really short with my mom one day and I snapped and I felt so bad because she just repeated the same question over and over. And I didn't want to make a game. I didn't think it was funny. I just, I was exhausted and the guilt I felt afterwards was horrendous. And I thought, I, I have to change. I, this is not who I want to be at all to anybody, especially my mom. And it made me realize that I was so focused on the task and getting all these things done, I had forgotten about the person. I'd forgotten about the relationship. And so I had to shift, and I created a tool called Your Memory Chip, and, the, and it asked, Um, you know, what do you need to focus on? And when I interviewed people all over the world, everybody had a checklist or a job description. (laughs) You know, this is what I got to do. But there wasn't a human connection to it. And so I, I kind of, I still had my checklist, but first and foremost, I came down to three things that I had to focus on. And that was, was she safe? Was she happy? And was she pain free? Because that, that was critical to her. And then I could do or not do or adjust how I do the things on my list. But it was really about taking, taking the time um, to, to let that relationship um, kind of um, just simmer in love and, and really put her first. I think a lot of times when we're giving care, we, we think we're putting them first, but we're putting the task maybe first in our priority list. But it's not necessarily always about the person first. Um, any comments on that on that thought? Well, Laurie, I think you you really hit it on the head. There is there's so much focus on the tasks of caregiving, um, and this is true even in professional caregiving roles. You think about uh, doctors and nurses and aides that work in facilities. Um, you know, we have so much to do all the time to provide care for the the person that we're responsible for. And um, rightfully so, we should focus on the tasks of caregiving. But um, caregiving also helps us to appreciate the, the present moment and the opportunity that we have with the time that's remaining with with your loved one to just be with them. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, and value the relationship that you that you have with them to create uh, new memories given the circumstances that you have left. And um, when, when you know that your time is limited, um, the significance of the time that you spend takes on an, an entirely new meaning, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And so um, you just gain a, a much greater appreciation of the present and taking time with your loved one, delib- deliberately taking time and choosing to, uh, not worry as much about the tasks of caregiving, but just to appreciate uh, the relationship that you have with your loved one can be extremely valuable and important. 
because I'll tell you what, you know, when, when your loved one is, is gone and has passed away, those are the moments that you're going to remember. I mean, time will sort of soften uh, some of that, that anguish and, and the heartache and the, the frustration and maybe some of the bitterness and the guilt that you feel. But you'll mm-hmm. also value, value and appreciate forever those moments where you said, wow, I, I was present with my loved one and what a gift that was. Yeah, yeah, it's it's magical. It just uh, and it slows you down, you know. Anyways, for me, when they when they had to slow down, then I slowed down, and it taught me that I didn't have to answer back then my pager or my phone or, you know, the world would still spin even if I stepped out for a few hours, and ignored the rest of it, and and that was a huge gift to me too. You know, to let go and reprioritize who do I want to be as a human being and how do I do I want to be accessible 24 seven to the world, you know, and and why is it okay for others to rest, but not me? (laughs) (laughs) And it it sounds kind of silly, but you I, I got in that mode anyways of, oh, it's important. It's important. Everything was important. And it's like, you know in the big scheme of things, what's still going to be here tomorrow and what's not. Yeah. Um, in the, in the book, there's actually a chapter on time and mm-hmm. the implications of time when it comes to caregiving. And, and you've really touched on some of those just in your offhanded remarks there, Lori. Um, and I really admire caregivers who choose to use the time that, that is available in ways that will um, lift and um, help the care receiver, help their loved one to to be inspired, to be as happy as they can be in the moment. And, you know, I think of a, uh, a daughter who I knew through my home care company. She was taking care of her father and he was near the end of his life. And he had spent his time on a horse farm. That's where he lived most of his life. And, um, because of his condition, he, he couldn't be a part of the horse farm anymore, and he was in a facility, and she um, took him out. One day, she, it was a lot of effort for her, but she was able to um, get him out of the facility, facility and take him to a horse farm. And uh, there in his mm-hmm. wheelchair, he just uh, watched the horses uh, run around and uh, that just made his, his entire day. She, for her, it was completely worth it just to see the look on her father's face as he was outside um, with the horses. And she, she always has remembered that. And I'm sure that her father did as well. And so, you know, things like that where if you can create opportunities for your loved one to uh, participate in activities that they, that they enjoy or that are part of their identity, um, it can be really meaningful for your loved one and also for yourself. Yeah, oh, oh, definitely, definitely. Um, one of the things I want to talk to you about, too, is your is your company, Caregiving Kinetics, and I know that you do some speaking and consulting. First, um, can you explain the name, Caregiving Kinetics, and why you chose it? <laughs> oh, thank you, for, thank you for asking me about that. Um, I actually thought a lot about the name of the company and I chose the name caregiving kinetics because um, 
I'm trying to take a, a phenomenon of, of natural physical science and apply it to a social thing, caregiving. And when you think about uh, kinetic, kinetic energy, it's the transfer of energy from one body to another, a body in motion. And in caregiving, that is, that is what's happening often. You know, there's, this, there's an energy that is uh, being shared between the caregiver and the care receiver, and they influence one another. And I think there are just a lot of uh, lessons to be learned if you think about how kinetics could represent caregiving. So, um, so that's what's behind it. Okay. Well, and, you know, one of the things that we hear all the time is, you know, that a lot of times we'll blame the person we're caring for, especially a person with dementia, um, if they're frustrated or angry or not understanding something. And typically, a lot of times, they were perfectly fine until we walked in the room. And what they're doing <laughs> is just mirroring back our nonverbals, yeah. you know, that, that we think we're covering up with our Stepford, you know, wife's smile. <laughs> and they're, they're reading everything else and spitting it back out, and then we're blaming them. And it's like, they were, they were relaxed. They were comfortable. They were fine. You know, you brought the agitation into the room yourself. And, and I think that, that was, that's a huge gift I learned, too, during this process of, you know, looking deeper at myself and what is the state of my being, you know, my emotional state. And is it, you know, am I, um, are people be able to read that physically, even when I think I'm hiding it? And it's pretty hilarious how often people can because they <laughs> don't really even know what we're doing. You know, we don't know we're rolling our eyes or my daughter used to call me out on that, too. And I'm like, what? What? I didn't do anything. Mom, you just rolled your eyes and you did a big huff. I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, you did, Mom. Yeah, you did. You know, don't tell me you're OK well, with this. I, I know you're not. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think family members are especially in tune with those things, as subtle as we may think mm-hmm. they are. You know, our family members know all of those little subtleties and can probably discern that a lot easier than you know, somebody out in public. Yep. Well, and, or even someone who's disabled picks up on that because they're so, they see it so often and then they watch for it yeah. and they go, oh, there's another, another person who's, you know, disrespecting me or not valuing me or whatever it might be. And, you know, it's so important for us to be in tune with that because we know on the other side what that feels like. It feels horrible. You know, to be that person who is getting these mixed messages, you know, and not feeling valued or not feeling welcomed or, you know, whatever, whatever the situation might be. So let, let me get back to um, what I wanted you to talk about. And then I sidetracked us there on your speaking and consulting and, and what type of offerings um, do you have for, for individuals or companies? Yeah, so uh, through Caregiving Kinetics, I do offer speaking engagements that can be either keynote addresses and conferences, or it can be workshops. I speak to uh, paid formal caregivers, and these could be healthcare professionals in hospitals or in long-term care facilities and home health care, or also unpaid informal caregivers, family caregivers, um, and organizations that serve them. So with, with the book, um, I'm looking at doing more caregiver support groups. Uh, the book mm-hmm. is very conducive to caregiver support groups because of the way it's structured with 
the different chapters and the questions for reflection. Um, caregiver support groups could easily uh, go through the chapters and uh, review the questions as a, as a collective group and, and learn from one another and have that shared experience. And I also um, am very happy to join them either in person or virtually to uh, discuss the book or answer questions or have a presentation as well that I can give. Um, so that's, those are the types of things that I do on the speaking side. I also do executive coaching and team building and organizational development for care organizations. Okay. Wonderful. Um, one of the, one of the questions I was going to ask you was, do you do virtual given the whole COVID thing? And you answered <laughs> that. Um, the, the other thing that you might want to try is just, uh, developing a book club for review, which it might have a little different connotation than a support group. Um, some people might feel a little more comfortable entering that realm because it's talking about the book and they don't think that they're going to have to go deep. But then usually with, with books and things that you're reviewing, you do, you know, but it's, it's just a, a different phrase. I know that there can be so much pushback in terms of just the name support group. Um, even with our memory cafes, I, like I said in the intro, I hate calling it a support group because it really is a gathering of friends. Um, and there's that's a great you know, suggestion. Different, yeah, different routes there, but um, and I know that books are are flying off the shelf these days. <laughs> During COVID, people are are looking at different ways um, to look at things, and um, you know you could even take your book in terms of just the the racial um, split in the country and stuff and, and what's going on um, with our cultural differences and things um, because it all, it all ties in. It's all about how we, how we care, <coughs> excuse me, and how we're doing things there. Um, so excuse me, I'll take you, a drink. Yeah. I'm gonna, I, I, so if you want to fill in a couple of words, I'm choking <laughs> at this end here. <laughs> Well, you know, I actually um, just, I wrote a, a blog post over the summer about how caregiving uh, exemplifies the type of connection and healing that our society needs right now um, as a whole. And when you think about um, what caregivers do, you know, they, they look upon the needs of the care receiver and meet the care receiver where they are and try to understand what those needs are and then reach out and help. And over mm -hmm. time, you know, the caregiver and the care receiver are kind of, they're aware of one another's weaknesses and imperfections, right? But there's this acceptance of one another that develops and emerges in a caregiving relationship. And um, I think that's really a beautiful metaphor for how we as a, as a nation can move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely need some healing. And that was one thing we didn't touch on. And, you know, we've got about nine minutes left here, but I, I think it's an important one is, you know, with my family, I was really close to my mom and dad. We had a great relationship, but not everybody's relationship is like that. So there are going to be sometimes you are tapped on the shoulder to care for maybe somebody you don't really like, somebody who hasn't treated you really well during this journey. Does your book get into that at all in, when you talk about relationships <laughs> and things? It does. In fact, I have a whole passage um, about imperfect relationships, and um, there are situations like that where, you know, there are estranged family members, and 
now uh, maybe it's a, an adult child and a parent. And now because of the parent's um, healthcare needs, uh, the, the child who's been estranged is being asked to step up and get involved and help with caregiving. And that can create a lot of um, hard feelings it could dredge up a lot of painful memories and, you know, the family, the family member needs to kind of look within themselves and decide, am I going to do this or not? And the one thing that I've really learned about this from seeing thousands of families go through this with my home care company is not to judge. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I haven't walked, I have not walked in the shoes of, of another person and, um, you know, who am I to say that this person should or should not be doing more for their loved one? Um, there are uh, so many different situations out there. Um, but the one thing that I've also seen is sometimes those estranged relationships can um, make progress and can, there's a, a certain amount of healing and forgiveness that can mm-hmm. happen at end of life. And Again, that's one of the things that can come out of caregiving that is often unanticipated. Yep, yep. I loved how you labeled it imperfect relationships because really every single relationship is pretty much imperfect at some some (laughs) stage of the game. Um, Just depends on on the level of of dysfunction, and I mean it can be, you know, um, it can be abuse. You know, physical, sexual, yep. emotional. It could be um, drugs and alcohol. I mean, it, it could be all neglect. It, it can go on and on and on, or it could just be, you know, we just didn't get along that well. We 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 didn't accept one another for who we were, and you know, lines lines were drawn. And you know, given that that possibility to to be able to heal that. Um, and you'll never know unless you unless you try. I remember having a woman call me one time, and her her mom was dying, and <clears throat> she ended up um, the the daughter ended up getting breast cancer, and so she had to step back for like nine months while she was getting treated. And her mm. sister stepped in, and when and when she came back, um, her mom was just in the fetal position and wouldn't talk. And she's like, I don't know what to wow. what to do, what to say. And I said. Crawl in bed with her and give her a hug and tell her how much you love her. And yeah. She's like, oh, we're not that, we're not that kind of family. You know, mom's never been like that. We were always just, we, we weren't big huggers. And I said, you have to do what you need to do. And so she she did it. And I remember being at a conference and I came back up and my phone was just blowing up, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And here it was this gal and she said. Oh my gosh, she gave me the biggest hug and told me she loved me and it was the best thing ever. And she said, I'm going to cry. She said, I wish my (laughs) mom would have loved me the way you loved me. And and she changed the whole, yeah, the whole trajectory of how she was going to be a mother to her child. And and what she gave as a gift to her mom, listen to me, whoops. Um, but it's just the the possibilities of of healing um, over just taking a risk of doing what your heart tells you to do. You know, it's it's important to me. It's really important to take that risk because you're not going to know if you don't. You're just never going to know. Exactly right, and you, yeah, you you brought tears to my eyes, Lori. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> 
But yeah. those are the types of well, things where, you know, the, the woman was, she, she was just so distraught and un, uncertain and confused and didn't know what to do. And there was a lot of hurt that was inside of her heart. And she decided to just, to just let it go and yep. to give her mom what she needed in that moment. And, and uh, it sounds like it had a profound effect on her. And that's, yep. that's a beautiful thing. And she was so afraid her mom was going to be mad and angry or push her away. And she's like, I just don't know if I can handle that. And I, and I said, yeah. you know, I've heard it so many times. And I said, I can't promise you. I said, but so many times I've heard from our elders that say, you know, I wish I would have done it differently. You know, but they mm-hmm. were following the of their parents, you know, and yeah. which is pretty common. Erin, I can't believe our hour is just about up. I want to make sure that we get people your contact information. Now, you are on Twitter as Erin Blight, and that's A-A-R-O-N-B-L-I-G-H-T. And then your website is uh, caregivingkinetics.com. And your email is Erin at caregivingkinetics.com as well. Are you on Facebook too, Erin? Yes, they just they just started a, a Facebook author page for me with the new book. So I think I have like nine people that are following it. Okay. <laughs> but yes, it's Erin okay. White author. Okay. So, I, yeah, I tried to take you, but I didn't see anything come up. But I'll, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I will try to new. join – Join the followers there. And, you know, for our audience, I I would really um, recommend that you, you know, check out this book, um, When Caregiving Calls. And you know what? It's it's always knocking at your door. You might not recognize it as caregiving, but no matter how you're interacting with people, you're showing how you care. And so let this guide you, you know, if you're caring for a parent, a spouse, an aging relative, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe, maybe it's a friend. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a certain title in order to fall under a, a, a criteria of being a caregiver. And so don't let that, don't let, don't let that limit your thoughts. Um, I, I love the idea of the reflective questions. And again, no one's going to be there scoring it. And if you decide you don't want to do it, don't do it. Um, but I think you'll learn a lot about yourself in that process. So again, thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Any, any last minute comment? We've got about a minute left. I'd just like to thank, thank you, Lori, for having me on the show. And I'd like to thank your listeners for listening. And uh, it's just been, I can't believe the hour flew by here like this, but I've really, really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. Me too. And for our listeners, you can always uh, find more information about Alzheimer's Speaks just by going to our main website, alzheimerspeaks.com. Lots of great resources there. And hopefully in the next month or two, we're going to be rolling out a new site that will be even easier to maneuver. And um, until next, uh, until this Thursday, uh, when I interview the director and producer of the film, Determined. We'll talk soon. Take care, everybody. And don't forget to share this episode. It was an important one. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. 
We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.